Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. You're listening to Think Sustainability, a show where we talk about practical solutions for a better planet. And I want to start the show today talking to you about plastics. So, I was staying in New York last week, only for a week. It was my first time. Very excited to venture to the Big Apple. You know, you hear so much about it through TV. You are from New York. Therefore, you are just naturally interesting. Movies. Oh, no. My family's in Florida and I'm in New York. My family's in Florida. I'm in New York. Big expectations. But while I was there, something happened that really rang my sustainability alarm bells. Monday morning. Heading to a local diner for breakfast. Ordered a big farmer's omelette, cheese overflowing, mashed potatoes steaming on the side, coffee on the way, feeling good. But when the coffee comes, this is where things went weird for me. The diner staff walks over, places the coffee down next to my omelette, totally keen. But the coffee is not in a mug. But it's in plastic. Not a coffee cup, like a plastic see-through cup. And I was like, okay. But more, the plastic coffee cup had two straws in it. Little red plastic straws in my coffee. I've never drunk coffee through a straw in my life, but okay. Tuesday morning, different diner on the way to a work meeting again. Coffee in a plastic cup, two straws. What was happening? Now... I'm not trying to sound scolding. I'm just trying to say I was pretty gobsmacked. I've never seen anything like this before in Australia, let alone anywhere else that I have travelled around the world. And doing this show for over a year now, although I'm no sustainability champion, I'm definitely in the zone where I'm noticing things, especially plastic straws in a plastic cup that's holding my coffee. I don't know about you, but to me, that seems unnecessary. So I started thinking, what other unnecessary plastic am I already seeing, am I already touching in my everyday, that I'm glossing over? And further, what plastic is out there that you can't get away from? So, in my quest to try and answer these questions and reevaluate my relationship with plastic, the first thing I wanted to do was to find some people who are on the same page as me and confirm that I'm not going a bit psycho. So, I went along to a screening of Plastic Ocean, an aquatic doco about plastics in the ocean. It's being held in the event space in the University of Technology Sydney Library, and there's about 40 people. Some are sipping on orange juice in glasses, not plastic cups, and there's popcorn going around into paper bags as a snack. And everyone here seems to have their own peeve with plastic. Yeah, I'm starting to become more enemies (laughs) with plastic. Particularly at the supermarkets and stuff, you see like one avocado or something wrapped in plastic or a lot of just... You get these two things wrapped in like a glad wrap type plastic, which really is not that necessary at all. My biggest concern is when I see people in the office who clearly carry a bag with them but won't carry a a reusable coffee cup. So they'll walk past a coffee shop, get their coffee every morning, 
uh, it wouldn't really be any extra effort to throw in a reusable coffee cup in there. <laughs> Back in my home country in India, my hometown has banned plastic bags completely, so we're used to carrying our own bags everywhere we go for shopping. But coming after coming to Sydney, I realized that plastic is so common, and then I kind of got used to it as well. So I still carry plastic bags with me around, but then I'm trying to make an effort of not doing it and carrying my own bag. It makes me feel horrible. <laughs> it makes me feel that I could make a positive change, but whereas I'm actually destroying other living things who have as much equal rights as me living on this planet. It can pollute the water and it might make the fishes get dead mm. sometimes if they get stuck in the plastic bags. And how do you feel about that? Um, a bit sad because they might get dead. And do you try and avoid using plastic? Do you, do you use plastic bags at the supermarket or do you take a take a green bag sometimes? Well, mostly my mummy does it because she does the shopping, not me. Because I'm only just seven. I can't go by myself now. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. People at the screening seem pretty strong-willed about their plastic peeves, but a lot of them are also saying the same sort of thing. Using reusable coffee cups, using a green bag at the supermarket, easy, quick choices to say no to plastic. But the thing is... Plastic is much more widespread than that. And I mean a lot more. If you have a look under your shoes now, what you'll see is there's, there's a rubber or a plastic. That's what it's made of. If we were to move away altogether from plastics, we'd have to really think hard about what we're going to do with the soles of our shoes. We can all go back to leather moccasins, it's true. So. <laughs> or bare feet. Or bare feet, even better, yes. So this is Bradley Williams. Bradley has a background in synthesis chemistry research, but he also has a keen eye for plastics in the world around him. The carpet, it doesn't look like plastic, but it's a, it's a polymer material. Polymer is a property of plastic. The computer, it, it, computer casing is made from, from a plastic material. The computer screen is made from a plastic material. The earphones that you have on your head is made from a plastic material. The foam in the chairs in which we are sitting is made from a, a, a plastic-type material. Even the walls that line the building we're sitting in, Bradley says, are coated in a weather liner that's made from plastic. And that keeps the wind and the dust and the rain and so forth out. But although there's plastic all around us, Bradley doesn't necessarily see that as a bad thing. There, there are some environments where we just can't get away from a durable plastic because the, the, what we are asking the plastic to do means it must be durable. And that's a key word when it comes to plastic. Durable. It seems unlike any other material or product that we as humans have the capacity to make and design, plastic reigns supreme. Some can take upwards of 500 years to break down completely, and that's not an accident. According to Bradley, we've designed them that way. Well, it's, it's the way it's made. It's, it's, it's constructed in a way to give it certain characteristics. The design method behind plastics Bradley divides into two parts. One, performance. Think of a pair of glasses. The lens are made out of plastic. Yep, sorry to break it to you, another plastic boo-boo. For the glasses to work, they need to have a certain density so that they bend light the right way and they also need to be transparent so the light can travel through. 
That's the performance side. The second one, endurance. How much does a pair of glasses cost? For a decent pair, you're probably looking at a baseline cost of a hundred bucks, and that can go way up and get really expensive. And if you're forking out all that money, you're going to want your glasses to last. We don't want them falling apart on us or becoming opaque after twelve months or something like that. So they, they, they're actually made to last for a period of time. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean once your glasses get old or break and you chuck them out, that the lenses are going to linger around the planet for the next five hundred years, because some plastics have the ability to break down faster than others. But there are there are alternatives, even bags made from polyethylene or polypropylene. Again, chemical terms, they can be made more biodegradable with certain additives, and it just depends on what we are trying to achieve with the plastic, and then also as a society, as to which way we want to go. Although there are biodegradable alternatives out there we could use, Bradley doesn't see this as a solution to our global plastic problem. Using alternative plastics for building weather liners, for the lens of your glasses, for the casing that holds your laptop, although an optimistic goal, our relationship with plastic runs too deep to completely change the way we manufacture and build everything around us. Yet, and because we design them to be super, super sturdy. Things like aluminium just don't have the knack and performability that plastics do. But Bradley's vision and a practical way we can truly make a difference is a simple one, and it takes us back to where we started: looking at the bags we take to the supermarket, the coffee cups we grab from the cafe, the straws we drink out of. Like, who the hell drinks coffee with a straw? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And they're starting to use like little mesh bags instead now, like reusable produce bags and things like that. As a reminder for myself to not really invest that much into plastic. It might make the fishes get dead. That's why all the time I just put it in the bin instead of the sea. And of course, the ridiculous and unnecessary amount of bottled water we consume each year. In North America, more than 90 billion plastic bottles go to landfill every year. These are these disposable water bottles. 90 billion—that's a large amount. I mean, that's that's tens of millions of tons of tens of hundreds of thousands of tons of this material that's just going into in, into the landfill, and that that that's really large scale. And by choosing to not buy those bottles as a small choice. We would have a large impact because it's that small choice being made across a large number of people has a huge influence on on the environment and then on the behaviour of the suppliers of those plastics, where whatever it is, whether it's the plastic bags, whether it's the the water bottles, whatever it might be, then it will it will change our behaviour there. And to ask the the suppliers for that, as consumers. This is something that we can do to to bring about that change. Bradley Williams from the School of Mathematical and Physical Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney, ending that story. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? 
This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER. I'm Jake Morecambe. There is more research and data available than ever before, which shows the impacts humans are making on our rapidly changing climate. But why is the message still not being received in some parts of our society? Dr Graham Pike, adjunct professor from the University of Technology, Sydney, is calling for a new type of science communication. He believes scientists and ecologists are preaching to the converted and that a radical change in the structure of universities, as well as different approach in media reporting, are all needed to drive the message home about climate science. Graham spoke to producer Shane Anderson about the current state of climate denial in Australia. Primarily, people don't want to believe that the world is going to the proverbial hell in a handbasket. People would like to believe that uh, it's a nice, comfortable world and it will remain so. Another major factor would be the small number of people who have been quite influential in denying science, especially the science in relation to climate change recently. But those same individuals have previously adopted similar denialistic approaches with regard to the risk of smoking, problems with the uh, hole in the ozone layer, and other similar things. It seems like just professional uh, denialists. So I'll just go back to what you the first reason you said that people don't want to believe there's this global change happening. Why do you think that is? Why do we feel so separate from it? It's the old head-in-the-sand approach. No one wants to believe that there's a problem for anything. When problems arise, the preferred stance of everybody, including me, is to say, no, it's not really a problem. I don't have to worry about it. If it is a problem, it'll go away. I don't need to think about it. You know, so I think people have that pretty much well ingrained into their uh, personas. I guess in Australia as well, we're so used to extreme weather, like bushfires, big storms. I guess hearing predictions that there's going to be more of that doesn't really phase us. Do you think that's part of it? Well, it's also hard to experience uh, long-term changes in the climate requires a long-term perspective and a long-term set of experiences. And we humans might notice, okay, well, this year's been particularly warm. Uh, We can also notice possibly next year or a a year or two ago that it was was coolish. So it's hard to integrate those kinds of experiences. It takes something more dramatic. For example, not something that we can all go out and see but we can all hear about, would be the melting Antarctic ice. And that's clearly happening. We can also see the rising sea levels. So those kinds of things people do relate to, but uh, they're rare for most people, and so they don't count uh, across the board. Yeah, and you you said the other reason people aren't receiving the message is because of an anti-climate lobby. Do you think that's accurate? Oh, absolutely. There's been uh, a book written about that sort of thing called The, The Merchants of Doubt. There are people out there who are professional denialists who make a living out of peddling, and I think peddling is probably the right word, peddling doubt about the kind of science that's important and is telling us about climate change. One of the interesting things about that book as well was the way the media was implicated in it too. So even though there's agreement in the science community that there's man-made climate change happening, the media would still want to represent the other side of that debate by getting one of the 1% and showing that as if it's an even debate. Yeah, one of the television comedians, I think it was John Oliver, 
he had a, a program that very much addressed that point. And he said, look, in fairness, we should make the debate sort of proportional to the amount of data. So he said, well, here I've got two or three people who represent the, you know, the contrary view that climate change isn't really happening and you humans aren't responsible. But I've also brought in other 97 people. And at that point, 97 people who are kind of looking like scientists marched into the studio. He said, this is what a balanced debate is all about, three plus 97 97 people are trying to speak over the top of three. Uh, it, I, it just was a brilliant illustration of how a debate should be properly framed. But as you just said, it isn't. Usually, um, the media has the mistaken view that a balanced debate means one person from one side and one from the other. And that's just not the way it ought to be. So do you think then the the problem lies also in, in the message? Is there something... Is there something wrong about the way scientists are communicating climate messages? Well, I'm not sure it's so much the message at fault, but the, the way it's being delivered is a big problem. To a very large extent, you know, we scientists and lots of other people, we are all largely preaching to the already converted. That's great. It makes us feel warm and fuzzy, but we need to be getting converts. Otherwise, we're not going to make a difference. The evidence relating to environmental perturbations, especially climate change, has been growing at an enormous rate, and it's now huge compared to how it was a few years ago. But at the same time, public opinion, while it fluctuates, overall it hasn't changed very much. There's a a paradox, if you will, between the growing scientific information and the way people are responding I mean, I I saw a statistic from CSIRO, I think it's about four years old now, that it said about 45% of Australians are not convinced that climate change is due to man-made factors. How would you even begin to go about communicating that when we've already got all this information that shows you that it is? Yes, well, I think we have to adopt a whole new strategy. My idea is to, first of all, identify the target audience. And in my mind, the target audience should be senior high school students. And my logic for that is senior high school students are at the point where they're on the threshold of getting jobs, spending money, paying taxes, uh, etc. And most importantly, also on the threshold of voting. And so we can influence that demographic. We can make a huge difference. My vision, my dream, if you will, with apologies to Martin Luther King, is that we find a way of getting our messages out to that target audience. In other words, find a way to get pro-sustainability messages to every senior high school student in the world. But I'm prepared to start with New South Wales. It's very ambitious. It is ambitious, and I certainly can't do it on my own. I couldn't even come close. What do you see as the government's responsibility in this? I think the government ought to be hugely responsible But the sad reality is that our elected officials are elected by us. And so the politicians aren't going to do the right thing in terms of sustainability or lots of other issues until and unless the general community indicates that that's what is wanted. It does seem that a lot of the anti-climate messages do come from the right. The former Prime Minister Tony Abbott very famously denies climate change. Do you think this is a political issue in Australia? The reaction from the far right of politics, I think, comes from a couple of different sources. One very basic source is an insane fear that government regulation is a bad thing and must be avoided at all costs. And yet it seems pretty clear to me that without government regulation, 
will suffer from the famous tragedy of the commons where everybody will jump in and do what's best for himself or herself and in the process destroy the common ground that we all share. The other reason why the the right wing acts the way it does is because they perceive, probably correctly to a large extent, that they actually have a, a large level of support. There are lots of people out there who like what right wing politicians have to say. Regarding your own research, you are primarily an ecologist. What's the mood in your field? I detect a high level of concern uh, amongst a small number of people. Most of my ecologist colleagues, I think, are just busy doing their research. Uh, There are very few ecologists actually out there campaigning for sustainability. Major, major reason for that comes from understanding sustainability of the scientists themselves. Your average scientist, ecologist or whatever, benefits through publishing articles, getting research grants. Those are the two major things. And way, way down uh, the list comes things like contributing to the community. Ecologists and other scientists don't benefit personally by campaigning for sustainability. Right, so academia creates an incentive to produce the data but not to really give you the time to do anything with it. That's said in a nutshell, that's exactly right. Dr Graham Pike, adjunct professor at the University of Technology, Sydney, in the School of Environmental Sciences, speaking to Shane Anderson. How often do you hear someone complaining about the price of petrol? It's so expensive, it was so cheap a few days ago, I should have gone to the servo then. Well, what if you could bypass all that drama and power your car another way? And no, I'm not necessarily referring to hybrid or electric cars. What if you could power your car through a pretty unconventional means? And by unconventional, what if your car ran on poo? Michelle Cull is from Urban Utilities, one of the largest water and sewerage service providers in the country. And she spoke with Liat Samaglu to talk exactly how the poo car would work. How is it powered by poo? <laughs> <laughs> the poo car runs on electricity that we generate from sewage at our Oxley Creek treatment plant in Brisbane. So there are about 300,000 people living in that catchment and every time they flush their loo, they're basically helping to power our poo car. Um, and the electricity that charges the car is produced by our co-generation unit and it um, essentially captures the biogas that's produced from sewage and uses it to drive an engine to create the electricity. So the sewage comes into the treatment plant and uh, it, it goes through a process called anaerobic digestion, mm-hmm. um, which means that the, the sewage goes into our large digester tanks and it's broken down by bugs um, and that creates the biogas and then we harness that biogas um, and use it to drive an engine to create electricity. And we're not only powering the poo car with that electricity, we're also helping to power up to 50% of the treatment plant's electricity needs. So it's, it's really great for us because we're reducing our operating costs and you know we're also helping the environment by using a, a cleaner, greener energy source. Could you tell me what the Queensland Urban Utility, uh, Utilities do? What, who are you guys? Well, Queensland Urban Utilities is uh, one of the largest water and sewerage service providers in Australia. So we cover five um, local council regions in Queensland, uh, including Brisbane, Ipswich, Somerset, Scenic Rim and Lockyer Valley. And, uh, yeah, we, we 
we produce um, drinking water for our customers and we also um, remove, treat and dispose of our customers' sewage. Whose idea was it to create this? Well, it was actually one of our staff members' ideas. Um, it was pitched at as an idea at our CEO Innovation Hour. We've, we've got a strong culture of innovation at Queensland Urban Utilities where staff have the ability to pitch ideas direct to our CEO and, and, um, and that's how it came about. So it's sort of been, the idea's been in the making for about the past 12 months, so we were really excited to finally be able to launch our poo car. It's turning a lot of heads on the streets of Brisbane, as you can imagine. <laughs> Um, and I've got to ask, what does the exhaust smell like or what does the, <laughs> yeah, what is the smell? Is it very strong or has it been treated so that there's no smell? Well, we, we actually get asked that question a lot, you know, does the car smell? But no, it doesn't because it's an electric car. It doesn't actually have an exhaust pipe. So uh, there's no smell to it at all, at, at all. And it looks pretty eye-catching too because um, the car is uh, wrapped with um, a picture of a man sitting on the toilet. <laughs> so there's um, no mistaking, you know, where this, um, ca- how this car is powered. You said it's a first for Australia. Is it, the fir- is it a first for the world or has, has this sort of technology been done before? Well, look, cogeneration isn't new technology, Um and, and we do believe there um, are similar vehicles around the world. In the UK, there is a bio bus. Uh, it's a little bit different to ours because it's actually run on biogas, whereas our vehicle is an electric car. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we are looking at the technology that, you know, could allow us to potentially use the biogas to run a gas-fired car. Um, but but the the... The gas that's emitted from the sewage as it breaks down is only 60% pure. And to run a gas-fired car, we would need to clean or scrub that gas to about 98% pure. And we don't have the technology to do that ourselves at the moment. Um, but, but it is something, you know, we're, we're looking at in the future. And you said that um, you've converted the waste from about 300,000 um, people uh, in the south and west of uh, Brisbane, just for the car or also for the plant? Is that a little bit wasteful for, like, so many people to create um, energy for such a small sort of output? Well, we're also producing uh, enough electricity to help power the treatment plant as mm-hmm. well. So our, our cogeneration unit at, at the treatment plant produces around 17,000 kilowatt hours per day and to, to fully charge the Puka only takes about 17 kilowatt hours so we're producing vast amounts of power and, and it is powering up to 50% of the electricity needs of mm. the plant as well as our little Puka. But the Puka we think is a great idea because we're getting it out into the community at events and, and it's a great way for us to talk to people you know, about the useful things that we're doing with their waste um, modern sewage treatment plants are becoming more like resource recovery centres, where you know where we're turning people's uh, sewage into something useful like energy. Um, and are there other treatment plants that are like looking at doing something similar to this? Well, we also have um, a co- two cogeneration units at our largest sewage treatment plant at Luggage Point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we ha- we have that um, technology at, at our two biggest plants. And together, we're saving around 
$2.5 million a year on our electricity costs at both of those plants combined. Are you wanting to create more, manufacture more cars? Well, absolutely, yeah. This is just the first step. Um, you know, one day in the future, we may be able to power our entire fleet um, by, you know, electricity that we generate from sewage. But, um, you know, that, that could be some time away. Um, this electric car we, we purchased um, secondhand, it's just a normal electric car. Mm -hmm. And I guess as technology improves, you know, with electric vehicles, uh, it is something we could potentially look at um, for, for, you know, our entire fleet in the future. But we're also looking at other ways um, that we can run vehicles. We, we've also planted um, pongamia trees at two of our um, rural sewage treatment plants where we're, we're growing pongamia trees and irrigating them with treated wastewater. And uh, the pongamia trees have seeds um, which are very rich in oil and we're hoping we can harvest those seeds to create biodiesel. So that's another potential uh, energy source for us. Michelle Cull, spokesperson from Urban Utilities, speaking to Liat Samaglu. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard today, make sure to subscribe to Think Sustainability on your favourite podcast app. For more info about our stories as well, go to 2SER.com. This show is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next week.